Well, I think one of the most powerful ways for a believer to communicate the truth about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done and what he can do for others, is to share a personal testimony, as we've just seen, to, to testify about who he is and what he's done for us specifically in our individual lives. In fact, our personal stories about Jesus Christ, our testimonies, really are unequaled in their effectiveness to not only communicate the truth about Christ, but also to combat the untruths, the false claims that some try and level against him. Ever since he came to the earth, there have been those bent on spreading disinformation, lies about Jesus Christ, and that really hasn't changed for 2,000 years. But when we share a true story about the truth of Christ working in our own lives, often those lies that are spread about him are actually defeated because of the effectiveness, the power, really, uh, of a personal testimony, which is why so much weight is given in our court system to personal testimony. When a, when a crime is committed, eyewitnesses are called to the stand, right, to testify about the truth, what they saw and experienced firsthand, which is then used by the court to hopefully defeat the lies of the one who's committed the crime. And we see that same uh, powerful dynamic, that same powerful effect from personal testimonies in the kingdom of God. In Revelation uh, 12, John has a vision where he sees Satan and his angels defeated. And he says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation 12, 10, and 11. In other words, the lies that our enemy tries to spread about us are defeated by the blood of Christ and by the truth of our testimony because our enemy cannot stand against the truth. And so when we share our testimony, the story of who Christ is and what he's done in our lives, we share that truth. And there's nothing that we can say or do that is more powerful than that. In terms of persuasion, your testimony as a follower of Christ can be tremendously powerful, which is why sometimes you can spend weeks sharing scripture with an unbeliever, telling them over and over and over again what the Bible says and arguing your points and sharing sound doctrine, the, the truth of the word with them, which, which by the way, we must do, okay? Our testimony cannot stand in proxy, in place of the word of God. They're meant to work together. However, often you'll find those same people who are unmoved by the truth that you share with them from scripture Often those same people will readily turn to Christ almost immediately or very soon after once they hear your personal testimony, your story, the, the truth about who he is and what he's done in your life. Why is that? It's because testimonies are powerfully persuasive. They are, uh, they're accessible and they're personal when all of a sudden not only are you sharing truths from an ancient book, but now you're sharing how those ancient truths have actually come to life today in your own life. So now the person hearing those truths is also seeing and experiencing the product of those truths sitting right in front of them as you share with them your story, your testimony. Truly, there's simply nothing else like it. 
That's why our book Found that we talked about earlier has been so effective over these past couple of years because that is a compilation of true stories about what Jesus Christ has actually done in our lives here at Upcountry Church. And then the people who read it, they come here and they meet us and they talk to and experience the living, breathing examples of what the gospel can do in the lives of all different kinds of people. Right? It, it's one thing for someone to tell you that their grandmother's chocolate cake was voted number one best cake at the county fair. Right? That, that may be factual information, and that's great, but it is something altogether different when you actually get to taste grandma's chocolate cake. Now you're a believer, right? Because you've not only heard the truth about that cake, but you've experienced the truth about that cake firsthand. And I'm telling you that when people hear, and even more importantly, see the effects of the gospel played out in your life, it brings the truth of that gospel to life for them. Because they get a taste of what it's like to see the gospel in action when you testify to that truth and then you live it out right in front of them. And so as we gather here at the dawn of a new year, it is common, of course, for people to take pause at this juncture, the the, the terminus of one year and the, the commencement of another. We often pause right here at this juncture every 12 months to reflect on the year past and to anticipate the one before us, which is also a natural occasion for us to make resolutions, commitments to live a healthier lifestyle through the coming year than we did maybe in the previous year, to connect more with friends and family, to create a better work-life balance in our schedules, to go after that new promotion or that new relationship or that new house or the new whatever it is that we've been wanting because typically people want more out of life. They want more out of life than what they currently have. Even those who talk about simplifying their lives and selling things and, and downsizing, which is great, by the way, but even then, we typically do that because we long for something more in our lives, more peace, more joy, more satisfaction without the burdens of materialism or whatever it is. And so at the end of the day, it is still a longing for more out of this life. And and there's nothing actually inherently wrong with that. But as Christians, we hold the answer to every human longing. It's the gift that we just talked about in the video, Jesus Christ. In fact, he is the only one who can satisfy the yearning of every human soul. And even though much of the world doesn't realize it today, he is exactly what the world is desperate for. And yet if they don't hear and see the truth, if they don't hear the truth and actually see the truth being lived out, how will they ever know? Okay, the world needs the truth of his word. And they need to see the truth of his word working in our lives. The world needs us to testify. And so I've been wondering, while striving toward a better life is naturally probably right now on the hearts and minds of so many people, I would imagine for at least the next few weeks of this new year, while we are making resolutions for all sorts of things, which is fine, but I wonder what if we resolved to spend this new year testifying to the Christ like we never have before? What if we resolve to share our testimony more than we ever have before this year? 
what would we risk if we actually did that? Maybe we'd, uh, we'd offend some people, right? Maybe. Maybe we would end up feeling really awkward at times, especially by those who choose not to receive uh, our message. It could happen for sure. We might even find ourselves embarrassed at times. Quite possible. We, we could potentially be risking our standing with some people, those who are maybe hostile toward the gospel that we, we work with or go to school with or our neighbors. That could definitely be the case. Okay, And so I, I won't sugarcoat it or try to make you feel better about the reality that there is always some risk involved in sharing our testimony with others, without a doubt. But what do we stand to gain by testifying to what Christ has done in our lives this year more than ever before? What's the potential reward in relationship to the risk? Well, first of all, we will be living in obedience to the command of Christ in our lives more than ever before because he's commanded each of us to share our testimony with everyone that we can. In addition to his great commission in Matthew 28, he had much to say about us sharing our testimony. After delivering a man from a legion of demons, he said to the man, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Luke 8, 39. In other words, go and share your testimony. Luke 12, 8. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. In other words, testify about me to other people. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. You see, Jesus was very clear. Tell everyone you can about me, and by the way, show them what I've done in your life. Okay, sharing our testimony with others means living obediently to the command of Christ. Secondly, if you share your testimony this year like never before, I'm telling you, you will realize a sense of purpose in your life like never before. Because we were created to glorify him. Which is precisely why so many people, even tremendously successful people, go through life so miserable when they live for themselves. We've just seen it in the news this past week because we weren't created for that. When we spend all of our time and talent and energy and resources elevating ourselves, we never discover our true purpose in this life. And so we're never satisfied with this life. And the yearning for more is never satiated because true happiness, true fulfillment and satisfaction cannot be found. It cannot be found in a life that is lived without purpose. And so if you want to live with purpose, try elevating Christ in your life like never before. Testify to everyone that he places in your path about what he has done in your life and just see, you just see how purposeful your life will become. You'll be amazed and you'll be changed forever. And thirdly, if you do everything that you can to testify to the work of Christ in your life this year, you may just snatch someone or maybe many someones from the fire as Jesus' brother Jude puts it. You want to talk about realizing a sense of purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction with your life, lead someone to Christ, 
Watch their life transform because of it. And I'm telling you, you won't care how many people you've offended with the gospel in the process. You won't think about all of the awkward encounters that preceded it. You won't worry for one second about what other people think about you. And you will no longer be consumed by your own longing for more out of this life because the satisfaction of seeing your testimony eternally affect the life of someone else is so powerful that nothing else you could possibly ever gain for yourself will ever compare to it. I say we go for it. I say we resolve together to testify to the truth of Christ in our lives this year like we never have before. And there are a lot of different ways to do that, of course. A lot of different ways to accomplish that, and we can't cover all of them today. And so next week, as we begin a new sermon series, working our way through the book of Philippians, we're going to delve much deeper into this subject. But for today, we will simply focus on one way in our last few minutes here together, albeit one of the most graphic and dramatically moving ways that we can testify publicly to all that God has done in our lives. And we'll also talk about the significance and the importance of this type of testimony, which is water baptism. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning, just the next few minutes, looking at a story about baptism, perhaps the most important story about water baptism which has ever been told. So let's turn together to the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 3. As the great prophet and preacher and baptizer, John the Baptist, the one who prepared the way for the Messiah himself to come, now experiences the very culmination of his own calling and ministry in the greatest baptism of all time. We'll begin with the first six verses, chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So after 2,000 years of Old Testament prophecy foretelling the coming of the Messiah and his redemptive work, the prophetic voice of God seems to fall silent for 400 years, leaving God's people from a, a prophetic standpoint at least to wait and wonder and hope for a savior. Doesn't mean the Jews were not active during that time. They were. The Maccabean Revolt is a great example where we read in the second century books of the Maccabees that Mattathias Maccabee and later his sons waged guerrilla warfare against Antiochus and the whole Seleucid Empire, ultimately destroying their pagan altars that were erected and taking back by force and cleansing the temple, which is where uh, the celebration or festival of Hanukkah comes from, by the way. And so the Jews were certainly active during that 400-year period of time, but the prophetic voice of God for his people was silent. And so the final prophecy that was given in the Old Testament is found at the end of the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree 
of utter destruction. So God says, instead of bringing a curse upon the earth, he will bring back the voice of the prophet Elijah. But then for the next 400 years, we hear nothing more of the prophetic voice of God, let alone the voice of Elijah until Matthew chapter 3. As John the Baptist, who according to uh, Jesus in Luke 117, came in the spirit and power of Elijah. So this was the fulfillment of the prophecy some 400 years earlier in Malachi. And as Matthew tells us in verse 3, also the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 43. As this John the Baptist shows up on the scene, this wild and certainly imposing man preaching and prophesying and baptizing all those who would respond to the word of the Lord. What a sight this must have been. What, what attention he commanded from the masses. First of all, he wore camel's hair, which was uh, fairly common among the nomadic desert dwellers of the time, but it was also the roughest, the, sort of the most crude form of outer clothing in the ancient world, not at all refined like we would find in a fur coat today. And of course, it says he ate honey. That wasn't from the local beekeeper's shop, right? He probably at great peril to himself had to harvest honey out in the wilderness along with these desert locusts, which in the original Greek is the word acris. It's actually a large grasshopper which we read in the Dead Sea Scrolls, were commonly eaten by people living in the desert at the time. In fact, they're still eaten today by poorer people in the Middle East and in parts of Africa. And of course, living out in the wilderness, having to provide for yourself every basic necessity has a way of making a person quite capable physically. I imagine John the Baptist was altogether a wild, imposing, and impressive specimen of a man. And so you have this physically imposing, roughly dressed force of nature coming out of the wilderness with grasshopper on his breath, prophetically preaching the imminent coming of the Messiah. And in the process, he's telling these religious Jewish people that they need to repent and be baptized, which is about as scandalous as you could get, because up to this point, the only people who were baptized were pagans converting to Judaism, right? They were considered unclean, and so they were required to go through a symbolic washing to take away their uncleanness in order to allow them to join the community of the Jews. And yet here is this seemingly wild man telling the Jews themselves, that they also need to have their uncleanness washed away. In other words, hey guys, all of us, every one of us must repent and have our sins washed away if we're to receive the Christ, the Messiah. And although that message didn't sit well with some of the Jews, as we'll see in a moment, there were masses of people who were responding to his message, coming out from the cities to the River Jordan and being baptized, and it says confessing their sins. And that word baptized uh, in verse 6 is the Greek word baptizo. It literally means to immerse or to submerge or to overwhelm. In fact, uh, in ancient literature, it was often used to describe sunken ships, sunken vessels that were at the bottom of the sea. That's why we choose to fully immerse people in water when we baptize them today, because that is what John was doing in the Jordan River. In fact, uh, the Greek words for poor or sprinkle are never found in scripture in connection with baptism. And so in keeping with the example and understanding of water baptism that we have in scripture, 
uh, at least in our tradition, we continue to practice full immersion when we baptize. But the real point to be made here is that John's baptism was used to help people identify themselves as unclean and then publicly testify to their need for a savior. It was intended to help them recognize their own sinfulness, to identify their own unrighteousness. And then Matthew says they confessed their sins. They testified to their desperate need for a Messiah to save them. John's baptism was preparing the way in the hearts of men and women for the coming of the Christ, just as Isaiah had prophesied some 700 years earlier. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And as we continue to read, then we see that not everyone recognized their own need for a Savior. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the religious clergy among them The Pharisees and Sadducees were coming out to the baptism, but not to be baptized. They were there to criticize, and so John hits them right between the eyes with some hard truth. He says, don't assume because of your religious heritage, your upbringing, your your family tree, that you're good with God. Because the only evidence of true salvation is the fruit of God's working in your life. Your religious heritage cannot save you. And honestly, that harsh rebuke is needed as, as needed today as it was then. There are, there are people in the church today who actually believe they're good with God because they've come from a Christian home or because they were raised in church or because their father was a preacher or their mother taught Sunday school. But listen, the fact is none of those claims are evidence of real salvation in our lives. None of those descriptors qualify us as Christian. No, no, the only evidence of a life that has actually been transformed by Christ is clear and identifiable evidence of the work of Christ in our lives because it is only Christ himself who can qualify us to receive Christ himself. Our own religiousness, our own self-righteousness, our church upbringing, none of those things can bring us salvation. Yet that was lost on much of the Jewish clergy, unfortunately, just as it is lost on many religious people today. And so John says to them, hey, fellas, here's your chance. Because the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. In other words, this is your golden opportunity to identify your own sinfulness and then publicly testify to your need for a Savior by being baptized in water because there is one coming after me. 
and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff, fellas, the chaff, he will burn with unquenchable fire. I don't think John was too concerned with what people thought of him based on his appearance. I don't think he was too concerned with who he might offend based on his rebuke of these religious and very respected men. Why? Was John arrogant? Was he crass? Was he uncaring? No, quite the opposite. John's heart was broken for them because he was infinitely more concerned with their own souls than he was with his own reputation. I think if John was here today, he might say it this way. Hey, fellas, if you profess to be a Christian and yet show no signs of the fruit of repentance in your life, you will be like branches that are thrown into the fire and burned, which is just how Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 19. By the way, that verb here, repent, when John calls them to repentance in verse 2, uh, the urgency and force of that verb, repent, as John uses it, is a call to radical Conversion, which is forever after expressed by the fruit of that true repentance, which really can all be summed up in love, living in such a way that our very lives testify to the love of Christ expressed through us toward God, of course, and each other. That was John's message for them, and it's John's message for us. We, too, must repent of our sin, be washed by the cleansing blood of the Lamb, and testify to the work of Christ in our lives. Which, listen, testifying to the work of Christ in our lives, sharing your story, sharing your testimony is the strongest and most powerful form of God's love that we can ever show another human being. Testifying to who God is and what he's done in our lives, that is love defined. So John's message is as relevant today as it was then. And aside from Jesus himself, there's no better example in all of Scripture of the risk and reward that we experience when we testify to the Christ and that of John the Baptist. And so John's baptism was one, of course, of repentance, as he said. Yet as we continue in our story, we find another kind of baptism, still water baptism, which also was meant to identify and testify, albeit in a very different way. Let's keep reading Verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I needed to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so along comes Jesus. As John is baptizing, and he, he approaches John to be baptized himself. And John says, Hey, hang on a minute, Jesus. I need to be baptized by you. And you're coming to me? And we know from chapter 1 of John's gospel account of the same story that John the Baptist came to understand who Jesus was. He knew that Jesus was without sin and yet 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance from sin and cleansing of sin. So if Jesus had no sin, he had no need to repent. Then why would he need to be baptized by John? Right? It's because Jesus' baptism was intended for a different purpose. When Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He was saying that in this baptism by John, Jesus would be fulfilling yet another aspect of all that was required by God of the Messiah, including all that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his fulfillment of the law. There wasn't one single step in God's redemptive plan for the world that could be left out if Jesus was in fact the true Messiah. And so by this baptism, Jesus was linking himself to, identifying himself with the Old Testament prophecies about him. He was also identifying himself with John's own ministry in preparation of the Christ's coming. And although he was sinless, in this baptism, Jesus was identifying himself with the sinful human race that he came to save, which also meant that Jesus' baptism testified publicly to his true identity as the one true Messiah, which is confirmed, of course, as Jesus is raised from the water and the heavens are open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. With that then, Jesus' public ministry is inaugurated and the testimony as to his true identity as the Messiah is confirmed. So, can you begin to see the profound significance, the, the overwhelming importance of that water baptism that was held historically throughout different dispensations, different uh, moments in God's plan and both identifying people with something and at the same time testifying to something? We can certainly see that in John's baptism and again in Jesus' baptism. And yet there's one more uh, iteration of water baptism represented in Matthew's gospel account that we will finish with today. In Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, as Jesus gives us the Great Commission, some of his final instructions to his followers, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And of course, this is a command regarding our baptism. Jesus makes it quite clear the fact that water baptism is inextricably linked to the work of evangelism and discipleship. They are all part and parcel of the same work. And interestingly, throughout the rest of the New Testament, that is precisely what we see. When people receive the gospel of Christ, there is simultaneous response with repentance and baptism. Why? Because Jesus commanded all of those things to happen as a part of the same work, which we just read. And yet somehow today... We've separated water baptism as this vaguely related and somewhat optional religious ceremony that we may or may not get around to at some point in our walk with the Christ. And how dead wrong that is. Wayne House says there is little question that baptism was not optional for one who named the name of Jesus Christ. And it was virtually the first thing a Christian did after responding in faith to the gospel. 
Then he goes on to list numerous examples of that in scripture. Okay? Just as water baptism was required for the Jews, just as water baptism was required for the Gentiles, just as water baptism was required for Jesus, water baptism is required of us. Not for salvation. Water baptism doesn't cleanse us of our sins today, and not because we must fulfill some prophecies about the Messiah. No, water baptism is required of us today because, first of all, Jesus commanded it, and secondly, because of what it identifies us with and what it testifies to in our lives. And yet, I'm not sure we truly grasp the weight of that today, even when seen by us as a requisite religious ceremony to be checked off of a list like the sticker you get that says, I voted, or the t-shirt you get when you, when you give blood. But water baptism is far, far more than a Christian ritual or a religious graduation ceremony. Water baptism for us today is meant to be a defining moment a cataclysmic shift in the lives, in our lives, as we proclaim publicly that we have died with Christ, been buried with Christ, risen from death to life with Christ, been washed by Christ, and we now live a new life with Christ. It is a great and powerful drama that identifies us with the Savior of the world, the one that all who are lost are desperately longing for. When we're baptized, we're publicly identifying ourselves with the Messiah. And at the same time, when we're baptized in water, we're sharing the ultimate testimony of who Christ is and what he's done in our lives. It is the culmination of his work in saving the world played out in the most dramatic fashion as we're buried in that water and raised from the depths of it into a new life in Christ alone. The world needs the truth of his word. And they need to see the truth of his word working in our lives. The world needs us to testify. And I think this should be the year that we do that like never before. And there's no better way to get started on that than through the act of water, baptism. And so one month from now, we're going to have a time of baptism in our service. Time to share with anyone and everyone who will come exactly who he is and what he's done in our lives. What's the risk? You might get a little embarrassed. Maybe. Will it make you feel awkward? Possibly. You'll definitely get wet. Listen, if you're a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, or if you want to be, and you've never been baptized in water, and I mean fully immersed in water, or maybe you were baptized as a baby, which means you didn't understand what was happening to you at the time, how powerful would it be to line up as many people who've made that commitment to Christ, and we'll give those, anyone who hasn't, lots of opportunity to do that, 
those who are willing not only to be baptized, but willing to invite every human being that you can to that service one month from now to listen to us give one testimony after another after another about what God has done in our lives firsthand and then to act out that saving work that Christ has done in your life right in front of them as you are buried in and raised from that water. Because there are people in your life and you know who they are, people who you need to testify to. And so often, people who wouldn't normally come to a church will come if you'll tell them you're being baptized and you'd like for them to be there. It's going to be a day of celebration. And I'm telling you that everyone who comes that day will hear the gospel clearly and plainly communicated. You have my word on that. So they will hear from this preacher factual information about Jesus, which is great. But I am here to tell you when they see you walk this aisle and get into that water and share that testimony and experience that baptism, the gospel that was just proclaimed to them will become real in a whole new way because that person who they know personally will just have told the story about what Jesus has done in their life in a way that will pierce their soul far greater than simply listening to me talk. So how about it? Amidst all of our resolutions, how about we make one resolution this year? that will last forever. And I say we go for it. Let's elevate Christ more than we elevate ourselves. Let's lay down our fears. Let's not worry about what people might think about us. Let's take a risk together and testify. Let's pray.